Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 250. That's a milestone. 250 episodes. Who did thunk it? Well, uh, last week we got great feedback on uh, the, the guests that we've been having. It's funny, people aren't in their cars, they're not in gyms, so podcast listenership overall is down, but you guys have been loyal and I appreciate that. Uh, a lot. And uh, thank you so much for all the kind things that you've said, both on the iTunes, on the Spotify, and of course, on social media. Uh, last week, I thought we had the busiest human being in the planet in Kenny Albert. And then I realized I happen to know someone who's probably a little busier because I've seen this guy on television every month of my life for the last 25 years. And that is the great Ian Eagle. And I interned for Ian in 1994. And since then, when I created this podcast, he has always been one of the guys I've circled saying this would be a great guest on the podcast. So we welcome to Sports with Friends, Ian Eagle. How are you, buddy? Number 250. 250. I finally made, I thought I was a friend, but you had 249 <laughs> other friends to get to yep. before me. Do you know who else uh, made that line? Jody McDonald about 60 episodes ago. Yep. Like, and, and How do you number... have episode 190 and not call me yet? And I said, yep. Just keeps That's growing. Cool. Yeah, you just keep offending more potential friends. That's right. That's right. But uh, if, if you think about it in terms of, you know, I've had an extension of you on the show because we had your son on the show in episode 217. Yes. <laughs> do you just have that off the top of your head? No, a sponsor asked for a guest list, so I have it on an Excel chart, and I opened it up once I realized that. Yeah, I was going to be very worried about <laughs> what's in your brain, if you could uh, quote chapter and verse exactly who you had on for which episode. Yes, Give me Noah a number. Was on Give me a number. Right, yeah, 11. Give me a number. Who was 11? 11. Who was 11? Hold on. I can scroll <laughs> up. Uh, that was Chris Daniels of King Five on the possible new arena in Seattle for the, yes, the NHL. I remember that one. Uh, two forty nine, <laughs> Kenny Albert. Uh, one yeah. quick story. I've obviously known Kenny forever. He's a great person. Yep. And Kenny and his uh, lovely wife Barbara invited us to a barbecue a couple of years ago, Fourth uh, of July at the house. Mm -hmm. Could not have been more welcoming. Uh, tremendous setup, food, drinks, you name it. Right. And the guest list was quite impressive. This particular year, Marv Albert, Steve Albert, and Al, Al Albert. Al Albert, the voice were of the all devil. All there. All there. And at one point, I'm telling a story to Marv, Steve, and Al all at the same <laughs> time. And I have their undivided attention <laughs> as they're listening to this story. And then I hit the punchline of the story right. and all three of them laugh in unison. And I am telling you this 100% <laughs> the truth. This might've been my crowning achievement as a human being. This was the reaction that I got in unison. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Three in a row. And I thought, that's it. I, that's it. <laughs> I could just die now, and I'm good that's for eternity. So we did so little on Marv, and we did a lot more on Steve and Al. In that episode, because I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in New Jersey, and I was a big Devils fan and a New Jersey Nets fan, not so much a Knicks fan. So my connections were to Steve and Al. 
it was it was very strange because when Al did the games with Stan Fischler, like that's my coming of age mm-hmm. as a sports fan. And it just it always connects. And the one thing I realized, Steve is is a little older than me. And you're obviously a little older than me because you had started at the fan when I was still in college. And so I knew about that. And your viewpoints in sports are 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 veered just by those couple of years. And it's no very doubt. strange because as you get older, you say, well, what's the difference? I'm not guessing your age, but you're probably five, six years older than me. You know, when you're 60 and 70, nobody really cares how old you are. But when we were growing up, for some reason, those six years changes your perspective on everything. Sure. Yeah, well, it's it's your formative years. And as a sports fan, uh, you have very vivid memories of your firsts on all of the four major sports. First sure. time you went to a game, first broadcast that you recall, right. first favorite player that you had and it's based often on how your team was performing at, at the time, time. Said, right. and look you grew up in new jersey so you didn't take the easy path you didn't no. just say well <laughs> i'm gonna be a nick fan i'm gonna be a ranger fan you said i'm gonna right. be a net fan and i'm no, gonna no. be a devil fan yep. and the that beginning. was the more challenging road uh, and there's no doubt it it did shape your view as a sports fan and and certainly shaped your view as a sports broadcaster because uh, you were going against the grain a little bit in your formative years. Well, and it's funny because we had Marty Brodeur on this show. And when we were getting ready to record, he said to me something like, he said, were you a devil's fan? And I said, that's literally the only professional franchise that I literally support publicly. And I went out of the way and I moved to New Jersey from Brooklyn the same day the Colorado Rockies moved to New Jersey. And I know Hmm. that because my job was to take my five-year-old sister and keep her out of the way of the moving company. And the reward was Carvel ice cream. And that was when I saw a newspaper that was literally the first time I'd ever seen a paper that folded, not like the New York post. And Hmm. the headline was today's the day New Jersey gets a hockey team. And I was like, what's hockey? And my first hockey game is the devil's first ever game. And my father, he, he lied to me in such a great way because he said there was a contest to vote for the team. And you had to cut an article, a little clipping out of the Asbury park press and you could vote for the team. And my father said it was a really close vote. So you better mail that in. And I voted for devils. And when they announced that they were going to be the devils, I was like, Holy moly, my my vote was real. And I was eight years old and I bought that hook, line and sinker. Yeah, you were a gullible child. That's pretty obvious. (laughs) You enjoyed Fudgy the Whale. That's also fairly obvious. And what were the other options? What what were they? Meadowlanders. They were the Meadowlanders. Oh, that that would not have been good. The Americans. I remember the ballot. I, I, you know, if I had thought like we didn't have cameras at the ready, I would have taken a picture of that. I would love to see what that ballot looks like now, but it was vote for the team and you cut it out and you had to get a stamp and you mailed it in. And that was how they got the name devils. And then some fan entered a contest to design the logo. And this was not how I thought this podcast was going. (laughs) It's not on your question list, is it? You think I have a question list? I don't know what you're doing. I, I, think, I don't uh, have a question. Let, not for somebody I've known for as long as I've known you. That is true, though. We have known each other now for nearly 30 years. That's insane. That's right. That's right. And do you remember the first meaningful conversation you and I had? 
And I don't expect you to remember this. I'll be overly impressed if you did. Oh, I mean, you were at Syracuse at the time. So clearly I took an interest in you because of our orange connection. I think there's a discrepancy, though. You have a memory of something that is very different than the memory that I have. Uh, I was living in the city in 1994. I did not move to New Jersey until 1995. From Queens, originally from Forest Hills. Radio station was in Astoria, Queens. I lived in Forest Hills. I got engaged. I got an apartment in the city. Ended up staying there for (laughs) almost three years. What is the ride then? What was the ride to? The ride, I, I think you remember it that you gave me a lift. But I know I did. Oh, I know I did. I it was in my Saturn, and I was nervous that you were going to think my car was chintzy. <laughs> I I thought I gave you a lift, is what I recall, oh, because I wow. never needed a lift. I didn't <laughs> need a ride. I had a car in the city. I paid. This is actually an interesting story. I get an apartment in the city. I have a car because I've had a car, and I need a car, and I don't want to take mass transit FAN, and I want to be mobile. So I ask a friend of mine, hey, how do you how do you advise me to get a garage? Because I knew he had a car in the state. He goes, oh, I have a garage headhunter. I go, what? That's a job? He goes, yeah, yeah. He'll get you a garage. I go, what's the guy's name? He says, Mark Jackson. I said, what? His name's <laughs> Mark Jackson? He goes, yeah, yeah, just call him. So I dial the number. Phone rings. Guy picks up the phone. Mark Jackson. I go, hey, uh, Mark, it's uh, Ian Eagle. He goes, uh-huh, yeah. I said, yeah, uh, Rob told me to call you about a, a garage. He goes, well, where do you live? I said, 85th and 2nd. He says, All right, I'll call you back in five minutes. <laughs> hang, hang up the phone. Five minutes later, the phone rings. I'm like, hello. He goes, hey, it's Mark Jackson. I go, hey, Mark. He goes, I got your garage. 86th and 3rd. You're all set. I go, that's it? He goes, yep, that's it. 175 bucks a month. So, okay, I'm in. I, I just show up. He goes, yeah, just tell him Mark Jackson sent you. So I walk over there, I walk <laughs> into the garage. There's a guy in, in the little cubicle. I said, hey, uh, Mark Jackson sent me. They go, okay. <laughs> I said, I, can I bring my car? He goes, yeah, you're, you're all and set. And no one's getting the name, the fact that you're dumbfounded no. by the name. <laughs> Nobody cares that the guy's name is Mark Jackson. The fact that I got it for 175 bucks made no sense. I have no idea how Mark made money. I assume the garage somehow paid him a stipend. And that was it. So I always drove to FAN. You're telling me this is a day where you drove me home. But but here's my other question. If you lived in the city, why would I drive you home? Exactly. That's but, my but, point. But this you conversation no took place. But no, no. What, why would you drive me anywhere? Because I drove you wouldn't drive me to city. New Jersey. I drove you to the city so that you could then take mass transit back to Jersey. That is my vivid Record. memory wow. of this. Okay. This conversation, uh, first of all, has fried my brain, but the the conversation, what I was always impressed with, and the reason for this is you literally, you simplified the, the overwhelming unknown about the broadcast industry and gave me a confidence that I will always be indebted to you for. And I could have sworn I was driving while I was <laughs> talking about this. But this whole, whole, the whole idea was 
you had because you had witnessed uh, Eric Spitz giving us the rules mm-hmm. of the internship, and it just sounded like so much. And then he had this whole thing about if you wanted to be on air, do not tell a soul. He said because if you're only here to advance your on-air c- career, uh, don't tell a soul. And what I remember you saying is, don't forget why you're here. Like, don't forget what your tr- what your goal is here. Don't, you know, make sure that you're getting out of this what you're putting into it. And I was fascinated by that. And I, I I've always thanked I, I've always thought of you as someone who helped steer me because the whole thing was so intimidating in the beginning when you're 20 years old. Well, first of all, I appreciate it. And, and I do remember the conversation because I had lived it. I was an intern at FAN. So from uh, May of 89 to late August of 89, I was in the same position you were in five years later. And I heard the same exact speech. I was told, if you want to be on the air, don't talk about it. We don't want to hear about it. I got the job as a producer a year later when I graduated Syracuse. And was told point blank, not just from Eric, but basically everybody. Look, if you're coming here to be on the air, don't take the job. We don't want you to come here. So when that's planted in your head, you have to make a very conscious decision at that point that I cannot make this the focal point of all of my conversations when I'm at work. But I still had a quiet confidence about myself that, look, I'm going to take it all in osmosis. I'm going to learn. I'm going to observe. I was working with Howie Rose, gifted broadcaster. So I was like a sponge. I was soaking up knowledge from him. Same with Mike and the Mad Dog. In the newsroom, John Minko and Stan Martin and John Clossy. These were all update anchors at the time. Great John Clossy. Yeah, all of them. just retired. Yeah, all of them were very talented. And I just thought to myself, I have a front row seat. So even if I don't make it on the air at FAN, I'm going to walk away from this experience with more knowledge than I had coming in. I looked at it as graduate school. So the fact that I imparted that message to you truly came from an authentic, real place because I had lived it. And I I appreciate it, the fact that it resonated with you even all these years later. There was one uh, update anchor that you didn't mention and it brings me to one of the great stories that I'm not sure what your context was in it or what your connection to it was, but I think you were there. And this I'm not testifying to. Uh, the driving thing, I still, that, that, that's going to have to go to an arbitrator. Um, the, we got a phone call on a Monday morning, and the intern's job in the newsroom was to answer the phone. And Paul Olden was the, the update anchor at this point. Mm-hmm. The uh, the longtime one time voice of the New York Jets, one time voice of the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, and now the voice of the public address at Yankee Stadium. Great Paul. And there was a phone call and I took it and it was a guy on the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. And he, it's very loud in the background and he's shouting and he says, hey, can you guys tell me if this rumor is true? And I said, what, what, what are you talking about? And he says, OJ Simpson killed his wife last night. Mm. And I went, what? 
And he says, that's what I thought. There's no way it happened. No way. And I said, hold on, please. And I went over to Paul Olden, who I had now met once, and I've seen 3,000 times since. But, (laughs) But at the time, I had just met him. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Olden, uh, there's a guy saying that O.J. Simpson killed his wife. And he said, and this is what registered with me, is he said, son, and I hated that. I just I hated the word. And he said, son, you have to learn to have a nose for news. Don't chase red herrings. O.J. Simpson couldn't have killed his wife. And we hung up on the guy. Mm. And for seven hours, we did nothing, you know, because that's what the internship was. It was like a 7 a.m. to noon or something like that. And for the whole shift, we did nothing. And the news didn't travel that fast. And there was nothing there. And I just remember the whole time being weirded out by that conversation. I never. And all I took away from it was son. Like, that's all I heard. And <laughs> no, I remember I never, asking I, other people. I, I, But that's what I'm saying. I don't remember if it was you or no, someone No, no, I never heard that story. No. No, and, look, we, we did get a lot of phone calls into the newsroom, and some people were crackpots. So who knows <laughs> if if Paul had gotten a number of calls leading up to that about other topics. That one, uh, that one you would remember. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Well, and, and the funny thing is you fast forward 30 years and I was at Yankee Stadium in 2019 and I'll see him. We hug. And then the first thing I say is, do you still think there's no chance OJ did it? <laughs> and Paul, you know, Paul was in L.A. before he got to New York. So that's Paul, right. And he knew OJ. He knew that whole scene. He was the voice of the L.A. Rams. Yep, uh, yep. He obviously did some baseball as well. And he was more of a California guy than he was a New York guy. Uh, but as the years have passed, he's carved out more of a niche in, in the New York market. Yeah, very, very interesting. The setup in that newsroom for anyone that's trying to visualize uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, eight cubicles. Uh, it was a bullpen format. That's what it was called, the bullpen. Everybody was in close quarters, very close quarters. And that particular year i begin I, I believe that's when i started to see urine begin to form <laughs> on the ceiling above the gross. newsroom it was really a gross place it was it, it was not it was our dump that's just the way that we looked at it, it was a dump but it was our dump and when you heard about it when you get offered the internship and you're a i was coming off my sophomore year because this was before my junior year 94 and when I, I remember hearing about it and you hear it's the Kaufman Astoria Studios and they film the Cosby show and Sesame Street there. You think you're going to a palace. Like, yeah, not you, a palace. You, it was not, not, not a palace. No, it was the catacombs for you to get to the FAN studio. You walk through these hallways and people would be amazed. They would not believe that you were going down to the basement. And I remember vividly people that would come visit me and they'd get to the door and I'd come meet them. And they're like, this is it? I go, yeah, this is it. And it's not like it's going to be a lot better when I take you in. You're not going to be overly impressed by the equipment or the studio or the newsroom setup or the small offices. Uh, it, it really was theater of the mind. I think people had convinced themselves because it was the number one sports radio station in the country, the first of its kind. So the general perception was, oh my goodness, this must be 
something special and it was unique but <laughs> not special well and and i didn't want to do this whole thing about that but i wanted to ask you one unique question when i thought of things i did want to go on uh and and, and directions i wanted to take the show and definitely paul olden was not it uh but <laughs> but when you started there you know, Syracuse had this reputation for having these iconic broadcasters, and it was Costas and Marv Albert and Len Berman and Ted mm -hmm. Koppel and Dick Stockton. But, and that, you had a different generation. And WFAN was in so, such its infancy by 1989. I always wondered what was the hook to get you involved because by 94, it was a juggernaut. It was the number one morning show, the number one afternoon show, and anyone who wanted to get a taste of this business had to intern there, and I raced there. Yeah, you know it what happened for me, Seth? I obviously was intoxicated by the idea of all sports radio, so it starts in 87. That's the end of my freshman year of college. I'm interested in broadcasting. It just seemed like the timing was impeccable, and I was an avid listener. I was into it. I enjoyed the back and forth. And even in the early stages when they were doing uh, more of a national slant based on some of the hires that they made, it wasn't yeah. New York centric. Then when they started making changes, you could hear the sound of the radio station adjusting to the city. And that was 1988. And then when I got there in 1989, and the thing that struck me more than anything else, pre-internet, when I went back to Syracuse after my experience at WFAN radio, I thought I had a leg up on everybody else at the radio station up at Syracuse at WAAR because I had seen things and I had experienced things that unless you were there, you couldn't possibly know. You couldn't just go on a website and look up what Steve Summers looked like. Nobody knew what he even looked like. And you realize, oh my goodness, he... It looks like Weird Al Yankovic. This is incredible. Yeah. Uh, so just the fact that... I didn't see that, that parallel, but yes, I see yeah. that now. <laughs> so just the fact that I had this confidence going back for my senior year, and it was such fun to be even a fly on the wall with the debates that would take place in the newsroom and the conversations sure. that were all sports-oriented all the time. And it... It just hit me like a ton of bricks. If I could be in this environment professionally and they would pay me to be here, I'd have to consider it. I did not go back to Syracuse saying, well, I'm going to work at FAN Radio. I was still focused on on air. I had a couple of offers, one in Buffalo, one in West Virginia. So I had to make a decision as to whether or not I wanted to continue with the dream of just being on air right away and polishing my craft or taking this other opportunity when FAN reached out to me, it was spring break of 1990 when I interviewed for the job, the producer job, seven to midnight. It was for Mets extra Knicks pregame Rangers pregame. And I ended up getting offered the job, not much money. <laughs> they, they were not paying the producers much, right. but the decision to me was fairly straightforward if I had a chance to get into the work environment that I ultimately wanted to be in, why would I take this circuitous route by going to a different market and hoping that one day I could get back to my hometown? My thought process was, even though they're telling me, hey, you're not going to be on the air, I just looked at it as, well, we'll see. 
let me get in there. Let me get my foot in the door. Uh, let me build some trust. Right. And eventually, maybe they'll see me and I'll knock down the walls of perception. And that's exactly what happened. It was September of 1991 where I got a chance to do updates on a football Sunday. And that changed my whole life. Everything changed based wow. on that. No, it's, it's a great story. And then you, you stepped up when you had that chance because you didn't have weeks to prepare for that. They told you one day you were going and, you know, you had seen all those update anchors do their thing and you stepped up and you answered the call. And it was one thing I said about your son was, you know, he he had a chance, this fluke thing that he had a chance to yep. meet the Clippers and he had to answer that call. You know, it's it's one thing to be in the right place at the right time. It's another thing to take it and then take the ball and run with it. Yeah, that that is often the lost part of the equation. If you have talent, you're going to get chances in this business. But what you do with those chances is up to you. And in that particular case, you were alluding to it with with my situation. I was told on a Friday (laughs) to make a tape for Stan Martin, the sports director. And it was at a moment's notice on a Friday afternoon. I didn't wake up that morning thinking this is going to be the day that changes anything. I just went in for my normal shift. And because somebody was sick, I got a chance to go on the air that Sunday and I did well. And I got on the schedule the next Sunday and one of the update anchors left to go to Washington, D.C., Andy Poland. And that opened up opportunities for me to fill in. Eventually, I got a chance to do a talk show. Steve Levy and I hosted a five-hour pregame show prior to the Bills Redskins Super Bowl. Then Jody McDonald leaves for Philadelphia, and they offer me the overnight shift on the weekends. So I was working Mike and the Mad Dog behind the scenes, running the board, working with Bob Gelb. And then on the weekends, I was hosting the overnights. I was working basically seven days a week. And I was joyous. It was it was the greatest thing to ever happen to me, even though I was pushing it on on both ends of the spectrum. But it forced me to get into a mindset of a certain work ethic, a certain preparation. And all these things helped me down the road. Little did I know at the time, but I just learned about chemistry. I learned how to. Uh, look at a show and how to construct it and how to deal with people, deal with callers, interacting with guests. All of that was some form of an aid to me as I continued in the business and, and got some other chances. You know, one thing I don't think you and I ever talked about then in any of the rides that were given or taken Uh, (laughs) I'm just going to make this a theme for the whole thing Um, was your connection to play-by-play because I don't think, and maybe it was my naivete, but I didn't think of it because at Syracuse, everybody that wanted to work at WAER wanted to get on the air. And the best way to get on the air was eventually do play-by-play. Sure. So I didn't think that every person there was going to turn into a play-by-play announcer as a matter of fact. And I told this story a million times, on this show and on other shows, my experience with play-by-play, I realized I didn't like it. I, I That's not the storytelling that I like to do. I like to tell stories, and I had no problem ever being on a pregame show or a postgame show or a talk show or breaking down a show in any way I can. But to tell you the truth, 
play by play didn't work for me. And I was very thrilled that I learned that early. And I'll tell you when it was 95. So I interned 94 in 95, six of the AER guys got uh, hired to do the Auburn Astros, the single a New York Penn league. Mm -hmm. And I did about 35 games that year. And I lived up in Syracuse with my best friends. I mean, it was, it was, it was great. And I had a great time, but I realized that's not the path I wanted. And as soon as that happened, when the job in Denver opened up for me to go out of school, to go out and cover the Broncos, it was the NFL. And it was a jump immediately into the majors and play-by-play never was a thing. So for you, when, when you're getting these opportunities and becoming a name and, and, and developing your on-air persona, was play-by-play always the ultimate? And it was it always something that you would have left the fan for, or was that just the luck that New Jersey called? And that was, you know, tell that that's the one part of this story that I don't think I've ever heard you tell. Yeah, so 1992, I'm getting chances as a talk show host. 1993, I am hired full-time on the air, and it's a hybrid job. Updates and fill-in host, continuing with some of the weekend overnights as well. And the radio station acquired the rights to the New York Jets, and it was a big deal. Yes, that was they had the Mets, but that was a huge step that they were going to try to dominate the play-by-play form in New York. And Mark Chernoff, the program director, came to me and, and said, hey, we'd, we'd like you to host the Jets pre- and post-game show. And it was a major step for me because it gave me something of my own. At that point, I was considered a utility player. And while I was doing very well and I was very young, I needed something to call my own. And it was an important step. It It gave me a topic that I could go to at any time during my talk shows. I became a bit of an authority on the Jets because I was around them a lot. I was covering the team. And it also showcased some skills as a host and an interviewer in a different forum. So fast forward, that's where my career track was headed. And I think if circumstances were a bit different, Uh, This is something I look back on now and pretty amazed that it went a certain way. When they made the decision to change the midday show, they hired uh, Len Berman and Mike Lupica. Initially, it was going to be a two-man show. Then uh, there were some issues. Controversy. Mike Lupica went on the IMA show. Uh, Len Berman took it as a slight. Some things were said, and it was determined they would split the shift four hours, two hours to Len, two hours to Mike. So they went to Mike, and and I only knew Mike from meeting him here and there at a Nick game or a Ranger game. They went to Mike and said, hey, we could give you a co-host, and this young guy, Ian Eagle, would be perfect. And Mike said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'll do my own thing. I'm, I'm fine. So Len Berman comes in to host, and I'm doing updates. And Len, during the first commercial break, says to me, hey, just just stay in here. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do the updates and write them up. He goes, no, 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 just write them up in here. And then I can just turn to you if there's a topic that uh, we can maybe chew the fat on. So I realized he wanted someone to talk right, to. Right, right, right. So I said, no problem. I did that. 
Mike Lupica comes in now for the next shift, initially not interested in that. And then slowly, a few weeks in, he's asking me to stay in, to bounce some things off of. And he liked an audience. And I'd say six weeks into it, Mike pulled me aside in the hallway prior to his shift. And he said, hey, just want to let you know, I screwed up. They offered you to me and I should have said yes. And I didn't, but I appreciate the fact that you're sitting in during the updates and we get to have a little repartee. And I thought it was very magnanimous of him to say it. And we actually did have chemistry and it probably could have worked. But the irony is it was probably the best thing that didn't happen to me because if you just move a little bit forward, when the Nets job opened up, I read about it in a Phil Mushnick column that Howard David was not returning. And there was a series of events that took place over about a five day period. And I ended up getting this Nets job and I had to make a decision at that point, play by play or talk show. And I went play by play. Eventually they let me do both. So I benefited that I, I kept my job at FAN. I started with the Nets, John Spolster, Eric Spolster's dad was the president at the time. And he initially did not want me to do both. Joel Hollander was the general manager of FAN. I told him that, Hey, look, I'm going to have to leave the radio station. He said, why, why would you have to do that? And he picked up the phone with me sitting in his office. He said, hold on. He calls John Spolstra. He says, Hey John, uh, just talked to Ian Eagle. You made a tremendous hire. He's going to do great work for you. Uh, We'd like to maybe still keep him though at FAN. It would be great promotion for you guys when he's on the air, he could talk nets. And I'm just hearing one side of the conversation and Joel says, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Sounds good. And then he hangs up the phone. He looks at me. He goes, "No, you're good. You, you keep both jobs." <laughs> and I mean, it, awesome. it was this realization that things could get done. Sometimes you you make things more complicated in your mind. And the reality was, it took Joel, who was on the same level as John, to make the call. But the the fact of the matter is, I didn't balk at it when John told me, John Spolstra, "Hey, look, you're going to have to leave FAN." I said, "I get it. No problem." But I couldn't tell him that he would benefit. It took somebody at his level to tell him, hey, look, we can make this work. And I continued on for many years after that at FAN, and, and I got the best of both worlds. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I had never heard that. And it it makes perfect sense. And it was something that existed back then that was different than now, I think. Because I, just, a, just an example, uh, when I got to Seattle to KJR, they were not the flagship for the Mariners, but they let us have a booth in the kingdom to do a post-game show, even though we weren't the flagship. And why? Because they weren't selling out their games and anybody talking to them was a free commercial. Right. And they, they made it so easy for us to do our job. And I, that's unheard of now. Like you, I talk to students all the time and you do too. And let's, that's not even a possibility now. And, you know, back then the idea that you would work for one station and go on another station is so unique. And it really was a testament to WFAN realizing that your, your name had value that you, you know, you, you had established something. 
Yeah, uh, I I really appreciate it, and your perspective is one hundred percent correct. It it probably would not happen in this day and age. Back then, uh, I think there was maybe a bit more rationale involved, but there were trust me, there were many stations that would have blocked you or would have oh. said there's no way you can appear on both. I, I think part of it, and, and I must say this, it's just the reality of the situation. FAN didn't see the Nets, and at the time they as were on 1560 AM. They just yeah. didn't see it as competition. They didn't, and they weren't competition. So the reality was it, it was a benefit to the Nets that I remained on FAN radio, and it was a benefit to FAN because I brought credibility. I was out there uh, working with a team, and I had knowledge now of the Nets and the Jets because I continued in that right. role. Yep. Eventually replaced Paul Olden, who is yep. getting All mentioned right. now for the second time on this podcast. And has I not been him. on any one of the 249 <laughs> earlier episodes. Well, he might be 251, <laughs> the way we're going. Yeah. So I ended up replacing him in 1997 with the Jets radio broadcast. I got the CBS job in 1998. So it was a one-year Jets play-by-play yep. experience for me. But that, again validated FAN. One of their guys was moving up the ranks. And I truly was a product of their environment. I was the first right. intern to ever get on the air. And I think the station took pride in the fact that that I was a part of their culture and their fabric. And I was there not from the very beginning, but pretty close as this radio station exploded, uh, the likes of Steve Levy and myself and... Yep. Uh, Bob was shoes in. There were interns or lower level employees that began experiencing success elsewhere. Sweeney, well, well Sweeney already as well. Sure, Sweeney was an over a weekend overnight board op when I interned there. Yep, and I met Sweeney Murdy. And what I root for, I cheer for people who paid their dues. And when Sweeney Murdy was named Susan Waldman's replacement when she became the color announcer. I I was ecstatic and we're friendly, but we're not best friends. And I was ecstatic. I said, there's a guy who paid his dues. And when you were getting your gigs at CBS, now I'm traveling all over the country and your name is just rising and rising and rising. And we were just so proud to, to call you a friend. It was, it was so cool because you were, you were one of the nicest human beings when you weren't all those things. And you never changed. And I, I always appreciated that. What, what do you ever miss the connection to the fan that you had? Not FAN, the radio station, but the sports fan. Because now, you know, you do the games on Yes. And you do the games on CBS. And you're on TNT and the tennis and all the things that you're doing now. And so there isn't a lot of sports fans across the country that don't know your name. But when you were talking to them, they felt like they knew you. Yeah, that, that part I do miss, Seth. I would say of the talk show realm, that was the one part that you can't replace. Uh, yeah, you could get a little bit of that on social media, but not in a controlled setting. And what I loved about the talk show format was the fact that it was a tightrope, that you were walking right. every time you hit the button to welcome in another caller. And I enjoyed uh, the repartee, defense. and I enjoyed the back and forth, and I enjoyed sometimes the sarcasm 
that was required, especially in New York when you're doing weekend overnights and you're getting calls and people are hammered and they're calling you at 3.30, 4 in the morning on a Friday night slash Saturday morning or a Saturday night slash Sunday morning and to get the comedy out of those moments and yeah. uh, to have someone come up to you later on and tell you, man, I heard that at 3 a.m. I was driving and I heard that call and boy, you, you cracked me up uh, for many years. And this may say more about how little of an impact the Nets were having on television compared yeah. to the impact yeah. that FAM was having. But for many years, when I moved to New Jersey, I would go out to a local pizza place, you know, stop by to get a slice, sit down, have a quick bite. And somebody invariably would come in and, and recognize me and say, well, hey, are you Ian Eagle? I said, yeah, yeah. They said, man, I love you on FAN. Said, oh, I really appreciate it. And they say, what are you, what are you doing now? <laughs> and so, well, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, doing, uh, I'm doing advertising. Have you seen the Geico ad? That's me. That was my idea, the gecko. If yeah, you're so, looking for a real estate agent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> those, those things keep you humble. Look, I'll take it a step further. I went to my high school reunion. High school reunion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And a guy came up to me, Jack Wu, that I went to high school with. And he said... Also has not been on this podcast. No, not yet. 252, maybe. <laughs> he said, uh, hey, Ian, great to see you. I said, hey, great to see you, Jack. He said, man everybody thought you were going to be a star. Everybody. I said, Oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. He said, so what do you do? <laughs> Tremendous. I, love I loved it. Loved it. <laughs> I love that. Um, when you are working with different partners, you just had a change. I, I guess you've worked with Dan Fouts for a long time and now yeah. Charles Davis. 10 years, uh, 10 years with Dan, which in network years it is like That's dog crazy. years. Yeah. 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 It was a wonderful partnership. One of my best friends, one of the best people and uh, disappointing that I'm not going to be with Dan because we just had so much fun together and we hit it off from the moment we got on the air, the moment uh, I, I know two how minutes that in. That's a great feeling. Oh my gosh. Two minutes into our partnership. I knew it was going to work. I knew it. We did not have any audition games. We didn't have any rehearsal games. We just started up. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, and I just knew it. I, I called my wife after the game. I said, this is going to be really good. And it turned out to be uh, 10 years of, of broadcast bliss. But then you, you, you also have your Nets partners and they rotate for the most part and yeah then, i don't i don't like them as much i don't i, I, don't really I, care I clearly them. i can i can tell um <laughs> <laughs> but you also worked for years with spinarkle jim spinarkle who's a great guy and then you know on the tennis you work with different people what is it about a partner i always get the sense that the 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 lead guy the host so, you know or the play-by-play -play guy your job is to make the analyst a star you know, one of the things that I've had experience with working with, especially former athletes, is never dominate them, always elevate them. And if they're the star, you're that much better. What is the secret to being able to adapt to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and not only different sports, but different styles and what other people's, you know, just personalities must be like yeah. and 
and their their level of nervousness. I would imagine that, you know, the first time you worked with Dan Fouts, he was pretty nervous. But if you're working with Richard Jefferson, he's also a little bit nervous, but in a different way. And I would just imagine the juggling of that must be so unique. Yeah, that that really is the secret sauce to this business and, and being successful. Your ability to be malleable and flexible and being able to work with all different kinds of personalities. So if you have the type of approach that screams, I'm just going to do it my way and everybody has to adjust to me, it's not going to work. Eventually, that's going to be exposed because... You're not going to be a good teammate. You're not going to be able to bond and find common ground. And eventually the viewers, the listeners, the audience will pick up on that. Uh, There's a really uh, interesting sense that comes with being a sports fan. You can figure it out pretty quickly when these two people that are doing a game get along, don't get along, have a very easy breezy chemistry, or there's tension and there's uh, awkwardness. It, it it comes through. It bursts through the speaker, whether you're doing radio or TV. So mm-hmm. what I learned, I mentioned that Jets pre and post game job. That was an incredible training ground. Mm-hmm. They assigned me Freeman McNeil, who was one of my favorite athletes growing up, former Jets running back, yeah. star at UCLA. He had no Great broadcast player, experience, zero. Right. He had never done one thing and they hire him to do pre and post. I meet him the day of our first pregame show for a preseason game. That day he comes in two hours early. We hang out for an hour. Uh, We just talk about life. We talk about family. We talk about background. We don't even talk football. I just wanted to get to know him a little bit. I wanted him to get to know me. And I was young. I was a young guy getting this opportunity And we hit it off. I felt good about it. I excused myself. I said, look, I'm going to head into the newsroom. I'm going to prepare for the broadcast. I'll come and get you when we're 15 minutes away from starting. He said, yeah, sounds good. So I do my thing. I go back. I get him. I bring him into the studio. You can visualize the old FAN studio. He is set up adjacent to me. So I'm facing the control room and he's to my right. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) We're minutes from going on the air. And I look at him. I said, you doing okay? You good? And he had a different look in his eye at this point. And we're two minutes away. And he looks at me. Can I curse on on the podcast or not? Yeah, you you actually can. There's a limit of five. So this is your one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, he looks at me and he says, hey don't fuck me here. (laughs) And I said, Oh no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to hook you up. This is going to be great. He goes, okay. Okay. So I realized that he was nervous, that this was new. This was different. And all of a sudden I was the veteran, even though (laughs) I was three years out of college, I was the veteran in this situation. This is a guy that's used to playing in front of 75,000 people, the Rose bowl, AFC championship game. And that is the emotion he was feeling in the moment. And that became very powerful for me. And it was this realization that I can make former athletes, former coaches, I can make them more comfortable 
based on my demeanor and based on how I lead them in our conversation. Yeah. And that carried with me when I got to Nets Radio, when I got to Nets TV, when I moved on to Jets Radio, when I moved on to CBS Television. And I've accumulated now 135 different broadcast partners over the course <laughs> of my career. Come 135. On. <laughs> no joke. Like you keep a running list, I keep a running list. Wow. And I'd like to think with all of them that I've done my part to put them in a position to succeed, to showcase what they're best at. Not all of them had great senses of humor. Not all of them were excellent on X's and O's. Not all of them wanted to talk strategy. So it was my job to figure out what are they best at and how do I showcase that? on a game in game out basis. One of the things that we've always wondered because, you know, Syracuse guys all talk and we always, we always wonder. And for my class in 96, you know, we all went through trials and tribulations and I've made a couple of decisions in my career that I ultimately regret. Did you have it seems like from a distance that you have literally gone from point A to point B to point C to point D. Like the path to CBS is, is, was written and it was almost like fate that you were going, this is the next level. And this is the next level. Then this is the next level. Did you have, and you don't even have to tell it. I'm not asking to, to unveil, you know, really personal stuff, but were there moments of true adversity or was this really like the most blessed career? Cause that's what it looks like as the, from a distance that you were a really good guy who kept getting gig after gig after gig. And man, every time you hit it, you stepped up. Yeah. It's interesting, Seth, because we all face crossroads. We all face decisions that we have to make. And I'd like to think I went with my gut instinct most of the time. And I treated people the right way, and I handled every assignment with a, a real interest in giving it everything I had. It didn't matter if it was a big assignment, small assignment. Anytime I've been on the air, I've taken pride in the idea that somebody out there is listening, and I have to do my best to perform in that moment, whether it's a, being a guest on a podcast, whether it's uh, being on a talk radio show, whether it's doing a Zoom, which is now something we've grown more accustomed to, or whether it's doing a national broadcast for the NFL or for the NCAA or for the NBA. The question that you ask is a legitimate one. Of course not. Of course, it isn't as easy as it seems. I definitely needed to catch a break here and there. I needed people to believe in me along the way. I needed to take advantage when I did get those chances. I visualized my career starting at a different network. CBS was not the one that I had dreamed of because there was another network, NBC, that, that had all of the properties. They had all the things I loved. They had the NBA. They had the NFL. Uh, they had Olympic sports. And I didn't get anywhere there. There, there just wasn't much of an interest. And I was basically told that I was young, very young at the time, but trying to break into network television, the decision makers at that point didn't see me in that light. So I walked away from that 
thinking, okay, maybe that's not in the cards. And this CBS thing popped up basically because all of their announcers were at the Winter Olympics. They were all in uh, Nagano. This yeah, is 1998. 98. All-Star Game, 1998, NBA weekend. I didn't have an assignment because it was the All-Star Game. And CBS needed three college basketball announcers that weekend because every one of their play-by-play announcers was in Japan. <laughs> so I ended up getting a game, this nondescript Vanderbilt-Arkansas game. And I flew down to Fayetteville, Arkansas. I get off the plane. There is a very pungent smell of manure as you get off the plane. Uh, th they didn't connect it to the gate. You had to walk down the steps <laughs> and then outside into a door that would lead you upstairs to the terminal. And I remember flying down there thinking to myself, all right, this is either going to be the biggest break of my career or... I'm going to be potentially kiboshed by another network that doesn't see me as part of the future. I was thinking the first part of, hey, I got to I got to crush this. Right. So the game happens. I'm paired up with John Sunvold, terrific guy. We do the game. I'm telling you, Seth, nothing of note came out of that game. Nothing. <laughs> Zero. Okay. So... I go back home now, I get back into my, my Nets routine, and I call my agent at the time, and I said, hey, any word from CBS? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Terry Ewert, who's the new executive producer at CBS Sports, called, and he said uh, he was very impressed with how you handled the traffic. I said, uh, oh, okay, and the agent said, what does that mean? Like, did you help with the escape after the game? You like ushered <laughs> the cars? I said, no, no. <laughs> I think what he's alluding to is in addition to all the announcers being non-CBS play-by-play guys, the producers and directors were also non-CBS. <laughs> they hired freelancers. So he had access to hear what was happening in the truck and what was being told to me. The producer was giving me bad counts for whatever reason the entire game because he was probably confused. <laughs> so I would get in my ear, all right, go on a break. In 10, <laughs> 9, 2, 1. Like, oh. And then the other way, oh, go on a break. In 3, 2, 10, 9. <laughs> and every time I would save it, I just had that ability to not get flustered and get us to break cleanly and get us out cleanly. So I think that's what he was alluding to. And I said, okay, well, at least he took something out of it. About a week later, I get a call from someone at CBS, Maddie Hetzel, who worked in the talent department. And she said, hey, Ian, uh, calling. Uh, we have another game for you. I said, oh, really? She said, yep, it's uh, Georgetown, Syracuse. Oh, wow. And it's February 21st. And now, Seth, you can relate. Of course. That, that's a dream. Are you watching? <laughs> Are you That's the game. Me? That's the game. You That's circle. the game. That's the game that when you're falling asleep at night, you go, oh, if I could ever call that game. Uh, so I look at my schedule and the Nets are playing the Indiana Pacers the same day. And I have nothing in my contract that allows me to get out of my assignment with the Nets. And I, I say to her, I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but I, I'm so sorry. I can't do it. 
I'm not available. She said, oh, that's too bad. Okay, no problem. She said, I'll give you a, a call back when we have the dates for our seminar for the NCAA tournament. And wow. I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm on the phone. I, I said to myself, okay, crazy lady. I don't, <laughs> I'm sure you don't know what you're talking about. And I hang up. And again, I call my agent. I said, yeah, they mentioned something about the tournament. He said, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't think so. They, they haven't alerted me to that. And he calls me three hours later. He says, uh, yeah, I just followed up on that. Uh, you are scheduled to work the NCAA tournament. So they walked away from that one game. They were impressed enough with the job that I did. There was one spot available and I got it. I got the one spot. And during the NCAA tournament, I was sent to Sacramento to do the tournament. I open up the USA Today when that was still a big deal. And you would read in order, you know, red, purple, regular section, green if you had to because you're on a long flight. And Rudy Marsky had a column that said CBS will gain the rights to the AFC. <laughs> and I'm walking the streets of Sacramento. And I realized this this could change everything. Right. And it did. Uh, they got the yeah. rights. They ended yeah. up hiring me to do the NFL. And that's really how it came about. It was timing. It was being in the right place. It was impressing people that were in a position to make the decision. And if you asked me ahead of time, like, well, how's this all going to work? I would not have been able to tell you that that's the path that I would have followed. That's that's wild. It's it's truly a, a wild story. There's one caveat, just because I'm a Syracuse alum. Had you done Syracuse Georgetown for WAR? I did. Okay. I did. It was a Georgetown win <laughs> my senior year in overtime, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Does it drive you crazy that they do talk shows now and that you can get cleared to do that and not do updates or play by play? No, no, that doesn't, doesn't bother that me. doesn't that doesn't bother no. you. No, not at all. Uh, to me, the more so the merrier. People, there's so many alums that are. Fine. No, no, you can't let that stuff get to you. The more the merrier. If that opens an opportunity for somebody else and they get experience and they use it, uh, to me, that's a springboard. You root for that. I I like that they're getting involved in podcasting. I actually am an adjunct up there, and I go up there and teach a class on podcasting. And that's how, actually how I met Noah. He didn't take my class because he was smart. Um, but, but that, that's where, uh, it, it all, it all comes down. Um, when you, you clearly have, you know, a family, but you also have an agent and you have friends and advisors and, and such, at what point do you stop saying yes? Um, you're the Nets announcer, you're the CBS NFL announcer, you TNT came about, you have the tennis I know about. I know I'm, oh, what, you know, Howie Denneroff calls you. You say, yes, you're doing that game. And now you're on Thursday nights or Monday nights or whatever game. Do you ever have to say, have you ever had a gig where you said, oh my God, I need to sleep? Or do you hibernate <laughs> in the summer? Like you are literally busy every day. And are you thriving in that? Does it ever weigh on you? Well, it, there definitely is a mentality that I brought to it, which was say yes. If an opportunity pops up, say yes, and then figure it out. My wife so, would kill you. 
She doesn't even know me, but she will. I she have been would. slaughtered for saying yes to things. <laughs> yeah. Continue. The, the only the only one I said no to during that time period, and it was the only time my wife, uh, Elisa, really did show uh, any kind of of real dismissal in the the possibility. The Mets had offered about a 20 game, 25 oh, game wow. package in the 90s with Sports Channel. Or it might have been early 2000. The great sports channel. Yeah. And that one, that one, I, I had to say no. It was the only time where she said, are you nuts? Uh, you have no time off. And now you're <laughs> telling me the couple of weeks that you take in the summer, you're going to go off and, and do baseball games. And she was right. Our kids were very young. And uh, I had no right to, to even put pressure on the family in that manner. Uh, beyond that, uh, my wife did about five years ago, say to me, look, you, you may have to re-examine your summers uh, to try to create some more balance. And she was right. Uh, so I've taken more time off. I have said no to things, no to assignments in June and July, more so than I had in the previous 10 or 15 years where I would just take it and I would do it. I was still filling in at FAN. I would work a lot in the summers because that's when most of the on-air talent would take off and they would plug right. me in afternoon drive and uh, middays and nights, you name it, weekend shows. So I, I have taken a step back a bit and yeah, I'm sure there's going to come a day where I'm going to have to make some broader decisions, but right now it, it still feels somewhat manageable. But the one thing that I really take pride in Seth more so than, than anything else is I don't make my problems anybody else's problems. I don't expect yes to solve my CBS problems. I don't expect Westwood One to worry about my uh, problems with TNT of scheduling. I deal with it. I don't have an agent deal with it. I deal with it. So okay. I realize that it's a jigsaw puzzle and it's my job to figure out how all the pieces fit. And I don't make it an issue. I don't carry whatever burden I have from one job to the next. When I get to the next assignment, that's my focus. That's my concentration. I'm not talking about the Nets game the night before to the Westwood One producer. And then when I go do a CBS game, I'm not talking about the Thursday night broadcast. I separate it because for everyone that's on that crew, that's the most important thing they're doing that week. I don't want to make what I did two days earlier, a focal point for what they're doing today or tomorrow. So compartmentalizing has been a big part of it and realizing that the world does not revolve around you. Everybody's got their own issues. Everybody's got their own challenges and travel problems and family, all of that. I, I try to, to make sure that those become separate entities over the course of my broadcast schedule. There's your ability, and this is the one thing I wanted to pull from what we talked about last week with Kenny, and given that your travel is so all over the place, and I would love a sample week, like just one of the crazy travel weeks, just the idea that you have to be so dedicated to your preparation. Um, that's something that I, I admired about Kenny and I admire about you, that you must have an ability to work on airplanes. 
because a lot of people don't. And you must be able to continue to make sure that all your travel stuff doesn't impact your ability to be prepared because you don't make excuses. And if a flight's delayed or something like that, like you don't go to the airport bar and tie one on what you do. <laughs> what you do is what, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's as much a part of your ability. And look, I'm not kissing you, but you're already on the podcast. It's, 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 but it's, it's a testament to your ability. And I think that especially if young people are listening to this, like what must it be like if you have a TNT game, a yes game, a CBS football game and a Westwood one game in four nights, you make sure that your charts are up to date and your prep is done and you're researching and you've read everything you can read. Even if you're at Newark airport on a, you know, on a, on a Wednesday night at three in the morning. Yeah, that's very real. Seth, what you laid out is exactly what, what I face over the course of, of a broadcast year. And that is the potential of an NFL game on radio uh, three Nets games, an NFL game on TV, the possibility of a national NBA game, and maybe even college basketball thrown in there over the course of one week. Oh my God. That that happens. That has hey, happened to me. I'm and I'm tired that, just hearing you say it. And that might include one red eye. It might include two red eyes. Uh, you have to be able to work on planes, and you have to be able to focus on the job at hand. You have to be able to get ahead. If you're leaving things for the last minute, if you're a procrastinator, it's not going to fly. You'll drive yourself bonkers. So I've had conversations with Kenny Albert about this and how you chip away at things. And sometimes on planes, it's actually better. If you know you've got a five-hour flight, that's five hours of work. And I've sat next to people that have tied one on at the bar <laughs> beforehand, and I'm just concerned they're going to throw up on my charts. Uh, that nearly happened before an NCAA tournament, which is probably the most stressful point of my year. Yeah, because you're get doing all these teams that you haven't seen. Correct. Correct. You're getting eight teams. Sometimes you've seen one, you've seen two. If you're lucky, you've seen three. There was one year in particular that I had either seen or had the year before. When I say seen, I mean, I've done a game. I've seen them in person. Right. One year where I had either worked a game of theirs or had them the year before, seven of the eight teams. And that was like a vacation compared to the norm. There have been years where I've taken the collar. I've gone 0 for 8. And two of the teams, you don't even know their nickname until you look it up. So uh, that is a very angst riddled time because it's counterintuitive. I'm a guy that gets ahead. I know my schedule. If I know I've got Kentucky, Florida, I'm going to chip away at those two boards, maybe two weeks ahead of time. If I've got Nets, Grizzlies, same deal. If I've got Ravens, Titans, same. I don't wait for the week of or the day of. With the NCAA tournament, there's nothing you can do. You can't, you can't get ahead because you have no idea where you're going, which teams you're going to have. Oh my God. So it is, it is a fire drill that two days leading up to the whole process of going to the practices and then doing the games. And then just the marathon of your voice of maintaining your health 
and staying strong and being mentally there and present for every single moment of those four games. It's fun. It's a complete blast, but it is exhausting and it is daunting. It feels overwhelming when you get the phone call and you get that phone call. You've watched the selection show. So now in your mind, you've determined which site would be best for me personally. I've Mm. seen four of the teams. Oh my goodness. That would be perfect. Going to Raleigh or going to Omaha. And then you get the call and it's like slow motion. Hey, Ian, you're going to Sacramento. And like, oh god. Oh yeah. I mean, oh no, no no direct flights. No direct flight. <laughs> Who's there? Oh, nickel stayed. Oh <laughs> I've I've experienced that. Literally. I've experienced that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad that we haven't done this. And I think I think you threw me with the whole who gave who a ride. But the, <laughs> I, the... I gave facts, Seth. 1994. I did not live in New Jersey. I, I moved to New Jersey in 1995. But the thing about ni- uh, 1994 that people don't realize is everyone's had the same internship. I did not have a better internship than anybody else, but I had the best summer. I had the Rangers win the Stanley Cup. The Knicks went to the NBA Finals. Mm. OJ and the baseball strike. <laughs> yeah. like, in that order? Is that how you that, remember? That, that was the order. And that the order. day before, the, John Schweibacher had a thing where he would take all the interns to a Mets game. And I went to the last game of 94 before the strike. And that wow. was one of the weirdest things. And I told Ryan Rucco recently, because uh, he's been on uh, this podcast, and he told an amazing story about uh, when he was on the plane and the Nets were all you know, the Nets tested positive and he, Doris Burke tested positive and he was scared and he was on the air when the NBA canceled the season. And what mm-hmm. we were, we, we were talking about just, just this idea that, you know, you don't know where all of this stuff is coming from. And all of this stuff was so unprecedented. It must be so strange for you now to not be doing games, like to not be going in any of those directions. Cause I would guess for someone who's this busy, you're climbing the walls. I'm actually good. Truly. Uh, I, I've realized over the last five years that I do have to turn off the battery and for my mental health and for balance in my life. So I've, I've been able to get to that place And I've just taken that mindset that I've used over the summer and I've shifted it to this time period. Now, look, everybody is feeling this in some way, shape or form. I'm incredibly fortunate and lucky and in a really good spot. And the hope is that the NBA is going to restart and the NFL is going to get going and we're going to have sports again. And albeit not exactly the way that we're accustomed to. And I might be in a studio somewhere and I might be calling it off a monitor, uh, which I have done. Well, you might be right where you're sitting right now. I might be exactly where I'm sitting at at this very moment and calling it off a computer screen. Whatever form it is, I'll be raring to go. I'll be prepared. I have an understanding of the energy level that it requires to do these games. And I think people want action. 
And yeah, yeah. I, I miss, I miss the, the action of course. And I also miss the interaction to me. That's been the bigger challenge of the collaborative process of putting a game on television, the amount of people it requires to do their job. Well, the team oriented mentality that the producer director graphics, tape, audio, switcher, stat person, spotter, stage manager, all of that. I I really enjoyed that process and I probably missed that more than anything else. This the human contact and Oh, sure. That part of it I don't know when we're going to get back to and my hope is that one day this will be a distant memory. Uh, but that's part of the reason why I I so enjoyed getting into this business, developing the relationships sure. and and forming legitimate friendships. Yeah. My fear for all of this has been the people that you're talking about though, because the stage manager could be in their 50s and 60s and the communications, the SID might be 65 years old and the general manager might be 72 years old and you know that's that that's what my fear is and people are like so anxious for sports and i get it i i totally understand but if the baseball players and owners want to fight over money and at the time of this podcast uh, you know right now there are no sports going on and if you're listening to this in the future tell us how the flying car is and also please tell us how we get out of this thing um that's my fear about all sports. I, I'm worried about that for the NFL. And I, I, I hear these stories, and I don't think the players are going to respect this. Tory Hunter was on this podcast two weeks ago, and Tory Hunter did a great job. And I asked him if the players would respect the quarantine rules. And he literally said, are you kidding? He said half the clubhouse is going to be on Tinder during the anthem. Hmm. And I went, oh, my God. And I, as soon as you hear that, I don't. I don't think we're ready. And I, and fans get really mad on social media when I say that. And I feel badly because I know how badly everybody wants it, but I'm not worried about the players. I'm worried about those people, the high risk people that are employees of these teams that are going to be compelled to go. Well, these are unprecedented times. And with that, we have to change the way that we view the the normal sporting event we do we have to understand that it's not going to be exactly the way that that we remember and maybe one day we're going to get back to it but i i think it's going to come in stages and we have to accept that stage one is going to look different than stage four and eventually fans being welcomed back in and uh, non-essential personnel being welcomed back in but the first step is keeping the players safe, keeping them healthy, having a system in place that if one player does test positive, it doesn't shut down everything. It's not a house of cards. And how the broadcasts fit in, it's not the top priority know. right yeah. now. I don't know. Yeah. They're going to figure it out. The networks, there's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of money at stake, sponsorship. Uh, television money that that still is up in the air unless the games are played. If the games are being played, the networks will figure out a way to cover them. Um, 
I just love that we didn't do Corona first. You know what I mean? Because that was the last like six episodes have all started that way. And I feel bad, but there was so much I wanted to cover uh, cover with you. Uh, lastly, just clear up something that I know not to be true and I'm not worried about it. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of people who are listening to this that don't have the relationship with you. You didn't get Noah the Clippers job. And please <laughs> yeah. clarify that because that rumor persisted. You know, everyone said the same thing about Joe Buck when he got the Fox job. But just if you could, in, you know, just wrap this podcast up and just explain how little involvement you actually had in making that happen. Well, first, I thought you were going to say, clear this up. You do not wear a toupee. I, that's where I thought you were going. Oh, with, I don't think you the, wear a toupee. The I, internet I, rumors. No, the, there's uh, a rumor that you wear a toupee. I've never even thought about it. <laughs> there's, there's always internet rumors. Uh, the question you asked is, is a pretty simple answer. Look, I have, I have no power in the hiring process <laughs> and uh, a play-by-play announcer just doesn't wear that kind of hat to make those decisions. So I know there, there might be some kind of perception bubble, but I'm here to burst that part of it. Uh, the second part, yeah, I mean, the, the reality for Noah was, uh, again, this perfect storm that happened for him that one of his professors used to work on the West Coast with Fox Sports, uh, knew Great. the executive Olivia yeah, Olivia Stomsky, somebody reached out to her, said, hey, who are who are the young broadcasters that that have really stood out? Because we may have something developing here. And it happened to be the Los Angeles Clippers. She told Noah about it, told a few other students, submitted tapes to them. They called him and said, hey, we'd like you to come out and have an audition for the Clippers TV job, which he did audition for with Corey Maggette. And he flew back to Syracuse, took a red eye, went back to his normal life as a senior, got a call. Didn't he have like a, like a formal he had to go to? He had a formal, yes. He had a formal. He, he got told that whole call. story on the podcast. And he did. People he did. still don't believe me that when I heard that story, they still don't believe that that story is true. That's why you had to verify it on this episode. Well, I mean, look, here's one and thing. Paul that... Olden comes on in 10 episodes. We'll have to clear something up with him. <laughs> One thing that uh, that I do want to to at least make very certain to anybody, and uh, th- this is coming from the bottom of my heart, whatever I say is true. I'm not I'm not someone. I don't distort. Uh, I don't play with the facts, and my son doesn't either. So uh, he got a call from the Clippers again, saying that the owner would like to meet with him. He flew to Seattle, met with Steve Ballmer. A one-hour meeting impressed him enough, took another red eye back, and then ended up getting a call with an offer for the Clipper radio job. They moved the play-by-play man who was doing radio to TV, Brian Seaman. Yep. And that's it. That's the story. There's there's not much more to it. Uh, the only other connection would be that the Clippers had shown interest early on, Lawrence Frank, formerly of the Nets, in possibly hiring some Nets broadcasters. And that was very early in the process. I had just signed a three-year deal with Yes, so... Uh, <laughs> that was not happening. Yeah, that I was not moving to the West Coast. And that was maybe five months before, six months before any of this happened with Noah. So for him, it's a story he'll never forget. It uh, certainly 
I gave him his his launching pad for a broadcast career. Uh, as you know, Seth, you can't BS this. Once you get oh. on the air, that's it. Everybody can make their own decision and form their own opinion on what kind of broadcaster you are. Uh, nobody cares about the path. Nobody cares about the road. They just want to know, can you do the job well? Yeah, and it was so ironic because I had done a project with the New Jersey Devils and Chris Wallace was uh, my supervisor there and he left the Devils to go to the Clippers. And when I looked and, and Noah wanted to make sure everything was you know, copacetic with the Clippers before he came on the show, which was very smart. And I said, can you reach out to this guy? And I went, that guy. And I texted Chris Wallace. I go, I told you we'd work together again. <laughs> yeah, it's just small, small world. world. And then, of course, Steve Ballmer, who was at a party. And I remember this when I was at KJR in Seattle because Barry Ackerley owned the Sonics and KJR. And there was a party that the Ackerleys had thrown. And we were there and Steve Ballmer was there and he was holding court. And somebody had said, God, I wish that guy would own a team around here. Mm. And I'm telling you, if Howard Stern, if David Stern doesn't conspire with Clay Bennett to convince Howard Schultz to sell to Clay Bennett, then Steve Ballmer would have been the Sonics uh, owner and they never would have left. And it, it's such a strange, you know, turn of events because then the, the unfortunate stuff happens with the Clippers and now he's there. And yet then that becomes a great thing for a, yeah, friend of a friend and you know a son of a friend of mine for 20 years it's it just it's amazing how small a world this this actually is and it was so funny last week with kenny we were talking about how the rangers parade how eric spitz sent me to the rangers parade to get man on the street interviews and kenny said he went to the ranger parade and went to a, a girl's apartment afterwards and that was his wife he met his wife mm. and i said Oh my God, that's small world. Like, you know what I mean? Like these kinds of small world stories. And you realize that this industry is such a small industry. And it's really cool that through the years, being able to follow your career and just being able to root for your success. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And like I said, in you are more than welcome to be episode 500. <laughs> okay. Lock it down right now. I want to be 250. I want to be 500. Eli Manning uh, has been on this show five times. We do a charity event together. He's a five-timer. He's a five-timer. Latroy Hawkins a robe? has the well, What do you get? Uh, you, well, you get a Seth Everett and friends Le robe? Latroy Le 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 Hawkins has been on six times, and originally it was tied, but uh, Latroy Hawkins, this is, again, small world, is Patrick Mahomes' godfather. And I put, you know, when the Chiefs went to the Super Bowl, I put Latroy Hawkins on again because he had been retired. Why would I be talking to Latroy Hawkins? Except if I can't get the quarterback, I'll get the godfather. And in that circumstance, so for Eli, he, he was episode one, I believe, but he was also, he was going to be episode 100. And I remember sitting down, we were doing, we did it, we do it every year to promote the charity. So that's why he comes on every year. And we were sitting down and he says, I said, what I'll do is I'll record this, but I'll get somebody else to be 99 and you could be a, a episode 100. And he looks at me and he goes, actually, I had a shitty year. Can I be 99? <laughs> Very nice. Uh, last question for you, sir. Why Ian and not Ian? And how many times have you told this answer? 
<laughs> well, again, uh, everything comes from a genuine place. So I'm not going to make up a story. This is this is the story. My father's mother's name was Ida, and they wanted to name me after her. So the choices were limited. You're either looking at Ivan or you're looking at Ira. And they went Ian with a creative little spin spelled I-A-N. And <laughs> look, I understand what most people view I-A-N as, but the reality is if you put a B-R in front of it, it's not Brian, it's Brian. <laughs> So if you're just that's looking the thing at you've it, said, but that's the thing you've said for 3000 rationally, just be a rational person for a moment. It should be Ian. It's the Ian's that have screwed me all these years. So I take pride in the fact that occasionally someone will come up to me and say, ah, oh, I got a cousin named Ian and I've been calling him Ian for the last two months. I'm like, yes, finally, <laughs> someone feels my pain. And I asked you that very, very early in knowing you. And then I remember, this had to been 10 years ago, at the Bob Costas WAER Hall of Fame. Uh, Bob Costas was there, and you like did an introduction of him. Mm -hmm. It was in New York City, and two Newhouse people that I went to school with that didn't know your career just said, why isn't he Ian? And I said... You had to ask that in the 90s. It is. The, the line of demarcation has well expired. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. He's done too many games that he just, <laughs> you just have to do it. Well, stay safe, man. Uh, continued success. Uh, we, we just know there are, and I speak for a lot of Syracuse people and just a lot of people who are in this business. We are rooting for you all the time. And when you're on the air and you do well, we all have a sense of pride. And, yeah. And it, thank it's you, been Seth. great having you on the show. Really, thank you. Great joining you. Uh, proud to be 250. And here's to many more. Keep it up and uh, continued success to you. It's been awesome to see your career unfold. And I, I think back to 94 when I drove you into the city and that conversation that we had. So that if means a lot. Say, if you say so. For Ian Eagle, I'm Seth Everett. This is Sports with Friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We will see you next week. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go, and then you'll know for me to stay. I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Come on, I'm gone, forget reaching me by phone Because I promise